Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday. It is November 20th, and as always, thanks so much for joining me. On today's show, we will be joined by a woman from 100 Mile House who says she was involved in a serious car accident when she was sent to the Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops. She was done so with no clothing as she had to be cut out of what she was wearing in order to get her to hospital safely. She says the care she received was fantastic, but when it came time to actually going home, she wasn't necessarily treated with the dignity that she had hoped to get. Olivia Fletcher will join me to kick off the second half of today's show and share her story. And then following that, I will be joined by the Executive Director of Clinical Operations for Royal Inland Hospital to find out just what the policy is when discharging people from the hospital, particularly when it comes to those who live in rural communities. And in just a short while here, I will be speaking with Kamloops Deputy Mayor Dale Bass to go over yesterday's Kamloops City Council meeting. But to begin today's show, I'm going to be talking about the issue of infant sleep deaths. Each year in B.C., approximately 23 infants one under, under the age of one year die unexpectedly during sleep. For many of the infants who died, unsafe sleep conditions contributed to or resulted in the death. Why is this happening and what's being done to prevent these deaths from occurring? Well, I am joined now by Michael Ailson, the chair of the B.C. Death Review Panel. Michael, thanks so much for doing this. Well, thanks for your interest in the topic, Jeff. So let's just start with those, those numbers. I mean, how frequently are infant sleep deaths happening here in British Columbia? About 23 per year. That's, uh, that, that's the, the stat I got from the report. That's right. But to put that in perspective, um, there are approximately 44,000 babies born each year and an average of 23 sleep-related infant deaths. Uh, many of those deaths are preventable and they occur disproportionately in vulnerable families. So the challenge really is in identifying the needs of those vulnerable carers and infants and engaging them and providing the support they need. So when we're talking about preventable deaths, what exactly does that mean? Like what kind of, what is the situation that is resulting in, in the, these fatalities? Well, a, a number of these uh, deaths r result from um, unsafe sleep conditions and, and the, you know, the importance of placing your, your infant uh, on their back, having a firm mattress that's free of hazards uh, to reduce suffocation, so say a, a firm mattress, tight-fitting sheet, no bumper pads, pillows, those kinds of things. Really important, a smoke-free environment um, and equipment of bassinet certainly are, are more preferable having a, a separate sleep surface for your child even though they're in your room. Now, this is, you know, sort of a subject I've heard not a ton about, but it definitely is something that gets more and more publicity, you know, the, the deeper we get here, um, you know, as, as years move along. Uh, you know, how, how 23 deaths on average, I guess, is that significantly better than, than we've seen in the past? Do you know? Well, um, we have a mandate to review all child deaths, and five years ago, uh, the coroner service convened a similar panel to look at unexpected infant deaths, uh, and this... Uh, review found that essentially we see the same same numbers and rates as we did five years ago. So from that perspective, I guess, why is this so important to look at and what, what's being done to sort of prevent these deaths from occurring in the future? What is the role of the death review panel in, in making sure that, you know, there are fewer of these as we move towards the future? Right. Well, uh, thanks for the question. So um, really, when, it, when a death re review panel is convened, it's, it's really looking at are there preventive opportunities uh, to prevent similar deaths in the future. And in looking at um, uh, these 141 deaths over a five-year period, 
the panel um, came to the essence of the recommendations from this report revolved around um, continuing to provide universal safe sleep messaging um, for everybody, and, but really the importance of identifying, engaging, and better supporting vulnerable families, uh, which is where a disproportionate number of these infant deaths um, occur. So when you're talking about uh, messaging and making sure, I guess, that parents and new parents are aware of sort of how, how they should be, uh, you know, laying their kid down when they are going to sleep, is this a matter of education? Is this something, you know, when, when uh, someone has a child at the hospital that they're making sure that, uh, you know, before they even leave and take their kid home for the first time that they, they know sort of the steps to take to ensure that, uh, you know, when a kid does go to sleep that they are, of course, waking up? Uh, yeah, so that's really important, that universal messaging. Um, but the, the panel also um, identified the need to, to reassess the availability and access to public health services for parenting families. And that should include an assessment of the family's need and circumstances and the ability to provide extra support um, where it's identified. Because one of the things that, that the, um, the panel did identify was a couple of gaps in terms of service provision, and that's a lack of capacity to deliver universal public health services and an insufficient ability to provide enhanced services in situations uh, where um, a vulnerability is identified. Now, when, when you're talking about that and the, and the availability of services, is that a matter of needing more uh, you know, resources and more people to be working in the industry to, to be able to help those who have questions and concerns? Or, or uh, you know, is it about um, funding? Like, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on sort of how we can go about filling in those gaps. Is there a, a particular one or two things that uh, is being recommended by the panel to, to, to fill in those gaps? Or is this sort of an ongoing uh, study that's being done to figure out how to go about doing that? Or, or what, what are you guys seeing from the death review panel? How, how can that, uh, that, that, that process or that gap be filled uh, in, the, in the immediate future, I guess. Right. So uh, I suspect there's probably a number of ways. And so the recommendation is specifically um, to, to the parties such as the Ministry of Health, the Regional Health Authorities, uh, Perinatal Services BC, um, the First Nations Health Authority, and the Ministry for Children and Family Development to actually look at um, how, how can that, that capacity issue um, be addressed in order to meet the needs of um, those vulnerable families. So I think those are the, the uh, parties who are best um, able to look at within their mandate about how do you increase capacity to, to actually address the needs of those people. Um, and I guess there is a goal, I would assume, of zero infant deaths. That would uh, be ideal, is for, for no you know, infants to, to go to sleep and not wake up the next day. But uh, is, there a, is there a way that you guys are looking to potentially measure success? Or are you guys going to be reviewing this? Is this sort of an every five-year review to find out if the situation is improving? Or, or how do you go about monitoring this moving forward? What are the time frames like for you? Right. So on an ongoing basis, the BC Coroner Services is um, continuing to, to check um, trends and, and look for opportunities uh, to bring people together to identify, uh, you know, the ways to prevent similar deaths in the future. So um, that's an ongoing part of our work. But also coming out of this is, um, is a relook at um, the health authorities all have uh, infant mortality review committees and um, one of the things that came out of the panel was uh, a look at um, should we be doing this um, at a provincial level uh, in addition or as part of that regional review um, to look at each of these specific cases to see if there are further lessons to be learned um, to prevent similar deaths in the future. 
Uh, I think that's pretty much all I have for questions right now, Michael. I guess I think we've uh, you've touched on it a little bit, but maybe just one more time before I let you go. Just what are some tips that you have for parents to make sure that, you know, when they are putting their kids to bed, uh, you know, that they don't have to worry or don't have to have any even a risk of, of, of a death occurring? Is there any specific tips or tricks that you have for, for new parents out there? Sure. I guess uh, to, to quickly get in, uh, probably the easiest thing to do is, is to search online for BC Safe Sleep Guidelines, and it'll give you a full list of, of a couple of things I'll touch on. But really, the importance of a smoke-free environment, uh, placing your baby to sleep um, on his or her back, uh, having a firm uh, mattress that's not cluttered, um, and a crib or a bassinet um, in your room, so a separate sleep su surface, um, those are some of the things that are really important to consider. Good stuff, Michael. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it's an important message, and obviously we don't want to see any kids uh, now waking up after, after a good night's sleep. So thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, hopefully we can prevent a few of these deaths from occurring. Thanks so much for your interest in the topic. All right, that was Michael Ailson, the chair of the BC Death Review Panel, talking about infant sleep deaths. About 23 of those are occurring each year in the province of BC, so definitely 23 too many. I think that's pretty safe to say. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about what happened at Kamloops City Council yesterday, so stick around. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Wednesday, November the 20th, and thank you all for tuning in. Kamloops City Council met yesterday, and a number of items were on the agenda, including picking a date for a referendum on a new pub, uh, performing arts center. I'm joined now by Deputy Mayor for November here, Dale Bass. Dale, thanks so much for coming in. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. How about yourself? Not too bad. Good. So, uh, yeah, let's just start there with uh, the performing arts center. Uh, referendum date of April 4th was chosen. That is a, a Saturday. Do you have any idea why they picked a, a Saturday date for this? Legislation requires the elections to be on Saturdays. It has to be on a Saturday. Yeah. Okay, is there I a guess reason the why that? I guess the theory is, and I must go back years, I guess the theory is that m many people aren't working on Saturdays um, or that you can, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I really don't know, yeah. to be honest, but I, that would be what I would suspect is that, that they figure, sat, you know, Sunday's church day, so Saturday is not everybody's working day. I guess that makes sense. I just, yeah. I believe the report, I, I think when I was reading it before, there were some dates that were kind of thrown out there as Mondays or Tuesdays, and then it came back with a Saturday. It just seemed like a, a significant shift, I guess, from what was originally I being discussed. But uh, We weren't discussing any dates before. We were discussing months, um, and then w once the legislation was reviewed, we were told it had to be on a Saturday. That's the two days they picked. We picked April 4th. All right. Well, there you go. April 4th. That's yep. uh, the chance for the public to get out and have their say a yes or no mm -hmm. uh, on whether or not the city should borrow $45 million uh, on a new per to uh, build a new performing arts center. Now, $35,000 on uh, communications plan was also approved yesterday. Yes. I guess, what uh, what's the situation moving forward for that? Is there a plan in place? Did you guys discuss sort of what that communications plan is going to look like? A lot of that money will go to an electoral mail-out to everyone, so they're aware that there's uh, the referendum date and that there is the advance poll 10 days ahead. Uh, and then there will be other marketing material to remind people that they should get out and vote. doesn't matter whether they vote yes or no, get out and vote. So mo most of that money will go to that. We're also going to use any free opportunities we have, like social media, to get people out Historically, municipal elections and referendums have lousy turnout, mm -hmm. and this is important. Um, 
When you're when you're talking about a plan, a communications plan, you're, you're you've mentioned a bunch about getting people out to know mm -hmm. when the date is, and mm -hmm. uh, but how important is it for people to know what they're actually voting on? Like, how much of this money will actually help people figure out exactly, you know, what what the whole project is about? Is there a part of that that oh, part yeah, of the plan? Oh yeah, yeah. We're in early stages right now, obviously, but uh, the communication plan that our management team, our communication team, is working on, will include things like, uh, for example. Because we don't have a large performing arts center with these types of facilities, we're missing out on these kinds of sporting events, for example. So there'll be that kind of thing. But in the end, the, the, the message coming out of City Hall will be just go vote. We still have to do a, frequent, a frequently asked questions section, and we're gathering up the questions now because we're getting them from people now. They want to know about everything from servicing to future to uh, what it'll cost to operate it. And we're going to have something on our website, letstalk.ca, explaining in, uh, in, in logical and, and hopefully nonpartisan terms what, what the impact is. Yeah, this seems to be um, a, a, a project that's going to generate a lot of discussion here between now and April. And you've already been feeling, it sounds like, quite a few calls on this as well. I mean, yeah, yeah, but surprisingly, um, I only have had two negative calls, um, and one, I one of them, um, ha he has a lot of questions. I expect we'll answer in the next few months. But unlike the last referendum on a performing arts center, the response right now seems to be more along the lines of, as Nellie Dever said at council last week, now's the time. Then wasn't now is. Well, why do you think uh, you know the, the the attitudes have changed? What do you think has changed in the last five years that makes this more of an appealing project? You know that's a good question. I'm not sure the city's grown. We've had more people come to it, but I think that I think that at the time that the last referendum was held, there were other issues in the city that had people upset. The people in Westside were not happy about their pool being closed, for example, uh, and I think that there were other issues that led to people just saying, "Forget it. We're not spending yeah. any money on this till I get that, that, and that done." I, I had somebody uh, say to me last week, "Why would I agree to spend money on performing arts center when you never fix potholes?" Right. You know, and, and that's how they're, they're, they're correlating the two issues. They're, they're separate. And yes, we are going to fix potholes. They'll still get fixed. You know, but that's, I think people vote for strange reasons. Yeah, I, roads, all, from my experience anyway, in dealing with, uh, with council and, and the public's issues when it comes to taxes and spending is, is roads always seems to be the top of everyone's priorities. Mm -hmm. And uh, council's mandate is not just to have uh, smooth roads throughout yeah. the course of a city, right? Yeah, There's a lot more to building sure. a, an inviting city than roads. Yeah, we're a growing city. We're going to be over 100,000 in a few years. And we need all the amenities. When we bring big uh, sporting events to town, Maybe mom and dad would like something to do at night, other than and you know, other than go back to the hotel room with their kids. Maybe they'd like to go out. You know, I just see this as being a great complement to what we already have in the tournament capital center projects. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what it was. It was a uh, fifty-four percent, I believe, voted no in in twenty fifteen. Yeah, right? fifty-four forty-six. Uh, yeah, so is that uh, going to be significant? Do you have any idea what the voter turnout was? Sorry, if I put 32%. you on the spot. 30 is very, very low. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, that was a result of maybe a poor communications plan last time around? Or? No, it, historically municipal elections have lower turnout than federal and provincial, which I always find stunning because really, what level of government really impacts your roads and your sewers and your water? Mm -hmm. It's municipal. And that's where, where the real work gets done. So I, I've never understood why people don't flock out to elect people for council. Yeah, I, I don't understand that either, but 
That just it seems to be the is. way it goes. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's a, kind of a nice transition here too, because you guys sort of started talking a little bit about budget yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even if it was a bit of a brief conversation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, public's going to have a chance to, I believe next Wednesday will be the first real public uh, opportunity mm -hmm. to, to, to gather and yeah. have their say on the budget. So what, what was the discussions that you guys had yesterday when it comes to the budget? What were sort of those initial talks that you guys were having? They were more overviews. We um, reviewed the asset management plan and, and uh, what, what we're looking at going forward with us, the assets we have, looking forward up to 50 and more and farther years ahead then there was the discussion about our uh, IT department and the um, what what they're anticipating in coming years they're going to need to do um, one of the interesting questions had to do with the tele the fiber optics with the the network we have and and I found it fascinating that it, the cost really isn't all that expensive we have to replace the fibers they're really easy to thre thread through it's the the infrastructure that costs the money uh, and then the third was utilities and we're raising sewer uh, by seven percent. And um, yeah, that's uh, one of the things that uh, sort of came out yesterday from, from story-wise that, uh, mm -hmm. that I've seen other news outlets reporting on was the uh, increase in sewer rates. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand it's about $29 to the average uh, homeowner. On the average house, it's $29. Um, is that just part of uh, an ongoing, I guess, um, asset uh, uh, plan to, to make sure... Uh, renewal plan, I guess, if you will? Is it's it, to build up reserves uh, to continue the work on the Tronk Hill Road. Okay. Well, because we're looking at, at a, a fair amount of infrastructure repair in the coming years there, and it's better to have the money in the bank than borrow it. Uh, it seems like, uh, I mean, $29 a year, I mean, when you just say it like that, it sounds like quite a bit. I mean, you break it down by month, it doesn't sound like very much, but $29 a year, does that not sound like a, a bit of a high number to you? No. Uh, what, what I guess, so what is reasonable? I mean, uh, could you have gone higher? I think it was $54 was the, the increase last year and now another $29 this year. It seems like it's uh, seems pretty high. It costs a lot to replace infrastructure and roads. I mean, look at West Victoria right now. It's, it's what, $18 million. Um, we have the same aging infrastructure on the Tronc Hill Road that has to be replaced. And um, everyone benefits from we repair our roads especially the major arteries mm -hmm. like that. So, so yeah, it might seem like a lot of money to you. It doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. Uh, and the end result is having the money to actually repair the roads. Because if you don't fix the infrastructure under there, you run the risk of having some catastrophes happen. Fair enough. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll just kind of reiterate uh, next Wednesday, first chance for the public to come out and have their say. It's just from your perspective of being on council, why is that important? Uh, or do you have a message for people who are considering coming out to, to you know, voice their concerns or opinions on the budget? Uh, why is it important for people to show up to these kinds of meetings? Because it's their city. Uh, at 7 o'clock over on MacArthur Island up in the lounge, it's their city, it's their roads, it's their money. Um, we're their employees. Uh, and much as we've talked about the lousy uh, voter turnout and we get up and come out and tell us because if we don't hear from people we don't know and then we operate in our own little mm -hmm. world um, and that's not how any of us on council want to be I find this council I've covered council for, for a long time here I find this council and I'm told this council by senior staff is out there more talking to people than in previous years as well and we want to keep that dialogue going also, if we, if we grow the dialogue between ourselves and, and our neighbors and our friends and our family, it might help boost the, the next election turnout as well. If they feel engaged with the whole process, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I just wanted to get that out there one more time because yeah. I think it's very important for people here to, to take pride in their city and yep. part of that is, is having a, a voice on, on how your money is spent. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much for coming in, Dale. Okay. I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, thanks. Awesome. That was uh, Kamloops Deputy Mayor Dale Bass. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking with a woman who was a bit frustrated, to say the least, when leaving the Royal Inland Hospital. Uh, she's from 100 Mile House and uh, had a lot of difficulty trying to get home. I'll be speaking with her after this. <laughs>
Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. And of course, thanks as always for tuning in. I read a bit of a concerning story here yesterday of a woman who was involved in a serious car accident, was treated at Royal Inland Hospital, but then after being treated, uh, well, she wasn't too pleased with the way the hospital went about discharging her. I'm joined on the phone now by Olivia Fletcher. Olivia, thanks so much for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me. So, so before we get you know too much into what exactly happened, I just want to ask you know how how are you feeling? Like I said, I saw some pictures online of the accident, and you know your your truck was left without a roof essentially. I mean, completely caved in, um, pretty scary looking situation. So, just first and foremost, how are you feeling right now? I'm alive, and that's the most important thing. I'm banged up, you know, still afraid, and but I'm alive, so I'm grateful. Well, we're definitely happy to hear that and, and definitely happy to have you on here on Radio NL to, to tell the story. So uh, maybe maybe it's important to know exactly what exactly happened. I don't know if you want to relive the situation too much, but just for the audience who's listening, I mean, if you can kind of relay uh, the, the, what led you to, to be in the hospital in the first place, if you don't mind. Well, I, um, as many know, I live in the Caribou. Um, I moved up here shortly after my daughter's passing and I was bringing up the rest of my furniture and whatnot, and just outside of Clinton, uh, we hit some black ice. And from there, went into a full spin and just started to hit the ditch and roll. And that's what brought me, well, first 200-mile house. Um, they didn't have the appropriate CAT scan and told me that I would be brought to Kamloops and back definitely sounds like a, a very frightening situation but thankfully uh you know you were able to be responded to and you were able to uh, to be treated uh like you you had mentioned i don't know if i mentioned it off the top that you are uh in 100 mile house so that's uh, important to this particular story there that we're that we're kind of going to get into so uh you were taken to uh you know 100 mile house weren't able to get the proper treatment there so you were you were shipped to kamloops to receive the proper treatment here in the city and and you know i guess how is the care here i mean uh, you're pretty happy with with the way that you were cared for while you were in hospital? Truth be told, the staff is fantastic. And throughout the entire story, it's really not a problem with the staff, more as the higher-ups that the staff have to follow. Okay. I just wanted to kind of get a lay of the land because now we're going to sort of get into where the story takes a bit of a turn here. So you were, you were able to get some treatment, and then, uh, you know, once they told you, you know, you, you might be uh, getting out of the hospital, that's where some concerns started to arise. So can you take me through sort of what happened uh, after that? You received some treatment. They told you that they were kind of getting ready to, to discharge you from the hospital. What happened from there? Well, before we go into that, I just want to point out that prior to me... Um, getting brought to uh, Kamloops. They had cut off all of my clothing and put a catheter in me uh, because they needed to be able to, to do what they needed to do. So when I arrived at this hospital, I was completely naked. Um, when they discovered that I had no broken bones, uh, the doctors discussed it with me, the options. And he said to me, well, we can't just throw you out in pain. And I said, well, that's good. And he said, but I feel like you should be able to heal right at home. I said, okay, that's great. And he walked away. At that point, I was being told to leave. I said, well, what are you talking about? Leave? I said, I'm injured. I have no way to leave. I have no clothing. I have no shoes. It's, it's de almost December. And she says, well, I understand that, but that's not our problem and that you need to leave. 
I refused. I said, absolutely, am I not leaving? But I said, the reality is you need to get me there or you send me back to the hospital and my hospital can discharge me. I said, but this is unacceptable. I cannot just leave. I will die. And they said, well, I'm sorry. This has been an issue for a long time, but this is the way it is. Well, the nurse left and she came back and she found a summer outfit, a summer tracksuit, and a size small. And she said, well, it's slim pickings, but this is what we have for you. I am no size small. Uh, then I said, well, this is not going to work either. Not only moments after that, I heard her speaking with the head nurse. And what she was saying was that I was being ungrateful. Well, the head nurse came in. She was approximately the same size as myself. I showed her what I was given. And I said, well, why don't you put this on and let me, because it was like a scarf. I would have been at a bus stop naked with a scarf on. She apologized upside down, sideways, and she, you know, told me flat out that this was what they have been taught to do. Um, she did eventually find me some clothes that were a little bit more suitable, still summer clothes, um, and uh, those croc shoes that you see in gardening, no coat, nothing of that nature, and said, okay, now you have to leave. I said, I cannot. Well, she did send me a social worker, and for five hours, we had to fight, and they only would refer to them as the higher-ups. We had to fight for five hours for me to get home safely. They were more than willing to throw me into the street to die. And that's a concern that I have. I also found out through all of this that this has been going on for many, many years. And I flat out refused and I made it very clear that again, you either get me to safety or I will be going public and they will get me to safety because this is abuse. And at that point, after five hours, they finally did agree to send me home. So your, your collision happened on Friday, from what I understand, I guess. When, when were you actually discharged from, from the hospital? I was officially discharged at approximately 1 o'clock on Saturday. I did not leave that hospital till almost about 4.30, quarter to 5. When you decided to finally leave, I mean, you were able to, I guess, get some sort of accommodation from, from the hospital after spending a lot of time fighting for this. Like, can you tell me sort of what, what compensation you were eventually given as a result of sort of, you know, making sure that you weren't, you weren't sent on your way without anything? Um, well, after about five hours, they finally agreed on a $400 voucher for me to get home. That's pretty crazy that it would cost $400 to get home. I mean, I, I understand cab prices are ridiculous, but that's, I guess, what the going rate would be? I mean, do you have any well, idea? honestly, or? I'm so glad that you said that because that's something that I had brought up too. Now, unfortunately, I had been in a car accident about four years ago. Mind you, this was in the city, and I had to travel from where I was to Vancouver and back, which would have been approximately the same time and it was half the price so there's definitely a gouge going on in this situation how difficult was it i mean you said like you said you, you fought for four hours four or five hours to make sure that you were able to get this voucher in order to actually get yourself home and i'm sure you know you're a pretty it sounds like you're a pretty strong individual who was able to, to stand up and didn't take no for an answer but i'm sure there are a lot of people out there who might find themselves in a similar situation who maybe don't have the the courage to stand up for themselves the way that you did i mean i'm I'm just curious kind of how you feel about how you were treated here and, and if you feel like this is something that, you know, everybody would be able to deal with the way you have, prob probably not. 
Oh, absolutely not. Um, I can be pretty pig-headed. I have been in healthcare for 20 years. I was nursing for 15 of those years. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, had I ever tried to pull a stunt like that, I would have been fired immediately. This is abuse of the system. And I do not understand why this is being allowed in the caribou. This, there is no bus. There is no way to get back. And it's really just horrified me even more because since I have shared my story, I've realized that my story is nothing compared to the families that have come forward. I've been hearing stories of a woman remembering having to hitchhike with her mother all the way from Kamloops home. I mean, with no shoes, people being sent out. I've even heard of a death multiple years ago. And the reality is, if I said nothing and did what they wanted me to do, I would have frozen to death. And I had nothing. I was confused. The only difference between my condition when I went in and left is now I was drugged and injured and confused. I saw some of those comments that you're referring to on, on some social media posts uh, connected to this the, these articles that are out there. So, uh, yeah, definitely some scary stories that are out there. I mean, what, what kind of response have you had since kind of coming forward with this? Have you heard from, from Interior Health about how the situation was handled, or have you had any sort of feedback from, from those who are in charge of figuring out how, how you are supposed to go about getting home? Well, I have heard a few comments and where they say, well, we did what we needed to do. But what they're failing to admit is I had to fight tooth and nail to have what needed to be done. And in fact, even the clothing that I was given was very inadequate. I, as a woman, even had my moon time, and I still was not even given simple underwear and, and the you know hygiene products that I needed for that. It was not a good situation and I am horrified by the people that just don't know that they they can fight because they were very strong in their stance and that's concerning this is the only reason I came forward and I made it clear when I left that I was coming forward and many of the nurses in that hospital agreed with me and even asked me to come forward including the um, social worker who eventually after five hours came in and high-fived me because she was exhausted from the fight and said good for you olivia this never happened she said it's very rare and people are just being left in the street what's your message here moving forward uh you know are you trying to, to hopefully see some protocols i guess in place to make sure there are rides available for people to get home uh like what, what where do you want to take this fight from here i'm just sort of wondering you know you've come forward with your story and and, and we're going to help get it out there a little bit further but what what's next here well, honestly, I am so grateful that the story has gone out as far as it has. My only goal, I don't want an apology because there is no apology to be had. What I want to see is it to stop. You know, there has to be a better way. Nobody should have to fight as hard as I had to fight, you know, the situation that I was in. I'm so blessed that I had the ability to, to know how to do that. But, you know, that's the only outcome that I want to see as a better situation in place because it's just mind mind-boggling it, it to, to this day it's been a few days i'm still just absolutely blown away that this is being allowed to happen i just want it to never happen to another human being again yeah. well olivia thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me i, I really appreciate it and uh, i do wish you a speedy recovery so thanks so much for stepping forward and and best of luck in, in getting better 
Thank you so much, and thank you for, for putting this out there. That was Olivia Fletcher from 100 Mile House. Coming up after the break, what is the protocol? What is in place at RIH for situations such as the one that Olivia found herself in? Well, I'll be joined by the Executive Director of Clinical Operations for Royal Inland Hospital after the break. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on this lovely Wednesday. Last segment I heard from Olivia Fletcher who lives in 100 Mile House. Now she says she was involved in a serious car accident and was sent to Kamloops for medical treatment and uh, did so, uh, she didn't have any clothing on when she was sent here as that had to be cut off in order to uh, get her safely to hospital. Uh, Fletcher then says that as she was being discharged she was told that she had to find her own way home after being sent to the city and she says she eventually uh, you know, was fighting to finally get offered a voucher to help get home. Is this a common story and how often are people who are sent to Kamloops for an emergency, you know, stuck here without a way home? Well, I am joined on the line now by the Executive Director of Clinical Operations for Royal Inland Hospital, Tracy Rainey. Tracy, thanks so much for coming on. Good morning, Jeff. So what can you tell me, I guess, first and foremost, when it comes to a policy that uh, RIH might have in place when it comes to people who are being discharged and how they get home? Is there, is, what, what is, I guess, the role of the hospital uh, in making sure that people do have a way home? Sure, great. Um, uh, you know, although privacy laws um, kind of prevent us from speaking to specific patient details, uh, I can assure you that we always try to follow proper discharge processes um, here at Royal Inland Hospital. Um, discharges from the hospital are planned with the patient, physician, multiple care team uh, members, um, and we include uh, as social work if a patient has specific needs or challenges uh, with transportation. Um, patients would be only discharged when they're medically cleared and safe to return home. Uh, we do recognize that transportation can be a challenge uh, for rural um, communities. Uh, IH will work with the patient, family and social worker to explore all options for transport home and sometimes that includes a taxi voucher if that's appropriate for the situation. Clothing and shoes are offered um, the individual. We have a great volunteer team and auxiliary here um, that help keep our closets full of clothes and shoes uh, so that's ready accessible for frontline staff so we can make sure that our patients and families um, have access to them in a timely manner. Uh, do you ever have any issues when it comes to the uh, what clothing might be available for people? When I was speaking with Olivia here b before, she said you know there there might not have been as many options uh, for clothing uh, for her to leave the hospital in than maybe she would have liked. Is that is there ever an issue when it comes to not having enough supply or, or, or different types of clothing available for patients? We're very fortunate to have a great support um, from our auxiliary um, that keeps our closets nice and full um, and we always manage a way to find uh, clothing for our patients and families um, to access so that they can go home even after hours and on weekends. Um, is there a specific way that people can maybe go about donating if they are uh, you know, concerned about what's available for people? Absolutely. Our women's auxiliary runs a thrift shop downtown um, and they're always willing to take donations and then they help keep our closet stocked up here at Royal Inland. All right. And uh, when it comes to transportation, though, I mean, this is a, a bit of a difficult situation, especially when it comes to people who are living in those rural communities that maybe, you know, need to take a one or two hour ride, uh, you know, in order to get back home. Is it uh, a really difficult thing for, for the hospital to deal with in terms of finding ways and adequate ways for people to get home? I mean, uh, it just seems like maybe the, the it's not as clear for some people in order to, to figure out what, what uh, you know, rights they have in, in terms of maybe is it a voucher? Uh, you know, Olivia said she had to fight for, for hours in order to get that voucher.
departure and four hundred dollars is a pretty expensive ride home. Um, I'm, just, I'm just sort of curious what what kind of the protocols are in place at the hospital to to make sure no one is left behind. Yeah, so we, we appreciate those challenges and we understand there are additional challenges for road patients, particularly since the loss of our Greyhound service. Uh, this is why we are hopeful that friends and family um, will be able to support each other on transportation requirements so our paramedic services are available to help patients in critical need uh, and hospitals are able to put their resources towards health care for patients. In those cases where patients do not have other options, uh, our staff do their best to provide that support and uh, in this instance, we, uh, um, uh, we will provide a, a taxi voucher. Do you think that when it comes to transportation home from the hospital, do you feel that that's even a, something that should necessarily fall under healthcare? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this specifically, because it's uh, it's difficult to say whether you know finding a ride home should be the responsibility of a hospital. The hospital is there to to care for you and make sure you know that your your needs are met from a medical point of view, but not necessarily when it comes to uh, you know transport. Uh, do you do you think that I mean it's a pretty difficult uh, question maybe to answer, but is that something that should fall under the healthcare system, or do you think there's another ministry that should be taking up those kinds of questions and concerns. Um, where, where do you think the responsibility lies? Uh, that's a bit of a complex question, and I, you know, I think we all share a bit of a, a responsibility. And our goal is to support those patients. Um, and like we said, we look for multiple options um, and uh, to get that patient home safely. Uh, if people are having difficulty, you know, you, you say it's uh, kind of a, a family member would obviously be the ideal situation if someone could come and pick them up from the hospital and take them home and make sure that they're cared for. But that's not always the case. Um, you know, is a taxi, I guess, looked at as sort of a last resort? Uh, yes, uh, taxi is looked at as a last resort to support that individual. You know, there are, is other options. So, for example, we do have options like during the week. We have health connections. Uh, it's BC Transit with support from IH runs between Kamloops and Williams Lake um, on Mondays. Um, there's also other routes. So um, there is some other options. There is some more challenges, though, on weekends. Uh, Monday to Friday, there is a few more options. Uh, how often is that bus service running? Uh, that's a great question. I'll have to get back to you, Jeff. I don't have the exact schedule in front of me. Okay, uh, but I don't. I don't believe it is running. Um, you know, daily, even throughout the week. Uh, you know, I'm just curious. Uh, you, you don't need to know the exact schedule in order to say this, but do you think that that maybe there should be a more frequent uh, trip between different locations to make sure that people are getting home, or if they need medical appointments and they have to come into the city from elsewhere? Uh, it's pretty difficult if there's only you know one or two or even three options for how to go about doing that. And and this might even go back to that last question I asked when it comes to whose responsibility is this. But um, you know, should there be more? options available for people to, to be able to be transported. It's difficult when you live, you know, in a, in a city that's uh, not necessarily close to a major hospital like Royal Inland. Uh, there's, I think we have to look at lots of options. Um, I think our system is complex and I think we need to look for opportunities to always improving service and how we can partners with other organizations, other ministries to ensure that um, our patients are uh, getting the service they need uh, in the rural communities. Tracy, do you have any message, I guess, if anyone was stuck in a situation where they were being discharged and didn't know how to go about getting home and, and maybe they're sitting there on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday and, you know, hospital staff are busy taking care of patients, where do they turn? Is there a specific spot where they should be looking to for answers? Should there be a, somewhere that they call or is there a spot in the hospital for people to go and, and voice their concerns? 
Uh, so, yep, so we have social workers uh, that work on the weekends and social workers can definitely assist with facilitating uh, those uh, transportation issues and help with those conversations. Uh, and we encourage patients who have concerns with care or their discharges that they can't be addressed with the hospital to contact the IH Patient Care Quality Office so we can review those concerns and address them in a timely manner. Uh, Tracy, I think that's pretty much all I have for questions here right now. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to, to get out there before I let you go? Is there a particular message for, for those who are uh, maybe have some concerns about the current policy, this policy that is in place? Do you have a specific message for anybody? Uh, just to follow up with our IH Patient Care Quality um, Office, and uh, we're happy to uh, uh, follow up on those concerns. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Tracy. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, people learn a, a little bit about how to go about dealing with these situations, and hopefully there's fewer of them moving forward. Thanks so much for doing this, Tracy. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. You as well. That was Tracy Rainey, the uh, Executive Director of Clinical Operations for Royal Inland Hospital. Yeah, definitely a tricky situation there for, for many people when it comes to figuring out, uh, you know, if you are being discharged from the hospital and you don't have a ride home, uh, might not necessarily be the easiest of situations to navigate. Uh, you know, they, uh, Tracy says there are supports in place, but it uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're necessarily or, uh, easy to access, uh, as Olivia had, had mentioned there earlier in the day. So uh, definitely an interesting story and some interesting information there. And I don't know if we solved anything there, but... Uh, Definitely an interesting conversation to have nonetheless. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9.